welcome to the March 2012 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, with Sarah Forge. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Our first paper this month is CPAP Increases 6-Minute Walk Distance After Lung Resection Surgery by Neary. The aim of this study was to quantify both the CPAP effects upon lung function and functional capacity in early postoperative lung resection, as well as to evaluate if CPAP prolongs air leak through the chest drain. 30 patients in the post-operative period of lung resection were allocated into two groups, an experimental group consisting of 15 patients who underwent a 10 cm water CPAP and a 15-patient control group who performed breathing exercises. Arterial blood gas analysis, peak expiratory flow, respiratory muscle strength, spirometry, and six-minute walk test were assessed in the preoperative period and repeated postoperatively on the first and on the seventh day. Significant increases in peak expiratory flow, muscle strength, and FEV1 between the first and seventh postoperative day were observed, both in the experimental and in the control group whereas FVC and PaO2 increased significantly between the first and seventh postoperative day only in the experimental group. The average loss in six-minute walk distance from preoperative to postoperative day seven in the experimental group was significantly lower than in the control group. When not comparing the two groups, only the six-minute walk distance was statistically different. There was no air leakage increase through the drain with the early use of CPAP. The authors conclude that, when compared to breathing exercises, CPAP increases the 6-minute walk distance in post-operative lung resection patients without prolonging air leak through the chest drain. CPAP has been used to minimize post-operative pulmonary complications after lung resection surgery. Neary and colleagues found that, when compared to breathing exercises, CPAP increased the six-minute walk distance in postoperative lung resection patients without prolonging air leak through the chest drain. As stated by Cimello and Capallo in their editorial, the use of CPAP or bilevel ventilation is safe and may be helpful in the immediate postoperative period following thoracic surgery. Although this requires further study, CPAP may be more effective than treatments such as incentive spirometry in this patient population. Our next paper is Respiratory Care Practices and Requirements for Respiratory Therapists in Beijing Intensive Care Units by Lee et al. Using survey methodology, the authors designed and mailed a questionnaire to ICU supervisors and staff at all 106 ICUs within 46 tertiary and university-affiliated hospitals in Beijing. They received responses from 72 of 106 ICUs. There were 644 ICU beds, 18 respiratory therapists, 464 doctors, and 1,362 nurses in these 72 ICUs. The ratios of invasive and non-invasive ventilators to beds were 0.7 to 1 and 0.31 to 1, respectively. 19 ICUs were not equipped with non-invasive ventilators. 18 started using non-invasive ventilation within five years. Nine had only nasal cannulas for conventional oxygen therapy. 
Of 194 responders, 58% implemented a spontaneous breathing trial before extubation, 24% never monitored airway temperature when using a heated humidifier, 57% changed circuits once a week, and 21% every one to three days. 91% had heard of respiratory therapists, mostly by academic conferences. 86% believed respiratory care should be provided by respiratory therapists. Due to paucity of trained respiratory therapists, only 10% of the ICUs actually recruited therapists. The specific tasks assigned to respiratory therapists were mechanical ventilation, chest physiotherapy, and airway care. The authors conclude that important differences exist in the respiratory care practices in Beijing, which are mostly provided by nurses and physicians. Respiratory therapists have been gradually recognized and accepted by the ICU staff in Beijing, but professional training and education are needed. Because respiratory therapy is a nascent career in China, the paper by Li et al. is of interest. ICU respiratory care equipment and knowledge were found to be insufficient in university-affiliated hospitals in Beijing. They also found variability in the respiratory care practice. It will be interesting to see how the respiratory therapy profession expands in China and around the world in common years. As pointed out by Giordano, this paper underscores the increasing globalization not only of the respiratory therapy profession, but also of the Respiratory Care Journal. Next is the paper by Rorich et al. Potential Effects of Corticosteroids in Physiological Dead Space Fraction in Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. In this study, the authors evaluated the changes in the oxygenation and dead space fraction in patients with persistent ARDS after steroid therapy. This was a non-randomized, non-placebo-controlled observational study, including 19 patients with persistent ARDS treated with steroids. The authors measured PaO2 to FiO2 ratio and dead space fraction at days 0, 4, and 7 after steroid treatment initiation. Patients were classified in intermediate group when corticosteroids were initiated between days 8 to 14 after ARDS onset, and in a late group when initiated after 14 days. Mean time from the diagnosis of the ARDS to steroid treatment was 11 days in the intermediate group and 21 days in the late group. When comparing days 0, 4, and 7 after steroid treatment, the authors found an increase in the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio and a decrease in the physiological dead space fraction. No differences were found between the intermediate and late groups. The authors conclude that, in patients with persistent ARDS, the increase in oxygenation was accompanied by a decrease in the dead space fraction after a few days of steroid treatment. To confirm potential benefit of steroids on physiological parameters and mortality will require a powered, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. Increased dead space fraction is common in patients with ARDS. 
Rory Chetal evaluated the changes in the oxygenation and dead space fraction in patients with persistent ARDS after steroid therapy. They found that the increase in oxygenation was accompanied by a decrease in the dead space fraction after a few days of treatment with steroids. In their editorial, Calais et al. recommend that measuring dead space should be incorporated into the assessment of patients with acute lung injury and ARDS. Devices such as volumetric capnography have made it increasingly easy to measure dead space at the bedside in mechanically ventilated patients. Diagnostic accuracy of endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle biopsy in mediastinal lymphadenopathy, a systematic review and meta-analysis is by Chandra et al. The objective of this study was to perform a systematic review and meta-analysis of prospectively conducted studies to define diagnostic performance of endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle biopsy in mediastinal and hilar lymphadenopathy. A comprehensive literature search was performed in the second week of November 2010. Studies were selected in two phases by two reviewers independently. Data extraction from each study was performed using a standardized data extraction form. Quality assessment of a study methodology was done using a checklist, which was developed based on a quality assessment of diagnostic accuracy studies tool and the nature of the test. Using the 2x2 two two tables, the authors computed the sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios. The 14 studies included for quantitative data synthesis had a pooled cohort of 1,658 patients from eight different countries. The endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle biopsy had excellent pooled specificity of 100% and a positive likelihood ratio of 5%. The pooled sensitivity was 92%, and the pooled negative likelihood ratio was 13%. The sensitivity of this intervention was not dependent on rapid on-site evaluation use or size of needle used. The pooled diagnostic odds ratio was 62.7. Only one major complication was reported, which resulted in early termination of the procedure. The authors conclude that evidence of moderate quality confirms the high diagnostic performance of endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle biopsy for mediastinal and hilar lymphectinopathy, both in malignant and non-malignant conditions. Chandra et al. conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of prospective studies to define diagnostic performance of endobronchial ultrasound-guided transbronchial needle biopsy in mediastinal and hilar lymphadenopathy. Evidence of moderate quality confirms the high diagnostic performance of this technique for mediastinal and hilar lymphadenopathy, both in malignant and non-malignant conditions. Available evidence also demonstrates the safety of this procedure. Next, we have the paper, Influence of Four Interfaces in the Assessment of Maximal Respiratory Pressures by Montemezzo. 
The aim of this study was to evaluate the influence of four different interfaces on a subject's capacity to generate maximal respiratory pressure and the impact of these interfaces on the repeatability of these measurements. Fifty healthy subjects with normal spirometry were evaluated. Maximal respiratory pressure was measured by a digital manometer connected to four interfaces using different combinations of mouthpieces and tubes. The following variables were analyzed maximum mean pressure, peak pressure, plateau pressure, and plateau variation. There was no significant difference between the four interfaces with respect to maximum mean pressure, peak pressure, plateau pressure, or plateau variation for PI max, nor did the number of tests performed to fulfill the criteria of repeatability for PI max or PE max differ among the four interfaces. The authors concluded that PI max and PE max values seemed not to be influenced by the different interfaces studied, suggesting that patient comfort and availability of interfaces could be considered. The measurement of maximal inspiratory pressure is a procedure widely used to evaluate respiratory muscle strength through the PI max and PE max. However, there is great variability in the equipment and measurement procedures. In this study, it was found that PI max and PE max seem not to be influenced by the different interfaces studied, suggesting that patient comfort and availability of interfaces could be considered. Valid measurements of respiratory muscle pressures might be more dependent on the operator than the equipment used for the measurement. Use of a single ventilator to support four patients, laboratory evaluation of a limited concept, is by Branson et al. In this study, a ventilator was modified to allow attachments of four circuits. Each circuit was connected to one chamber of two dual-chambered test lungs. The ventilator was set at a tidal volume of 2 liters, respiratory frequency of 10 breaths per minute, and PEEP of 5 centimeters water. Tests were repeated with pressure-targeted breaths at 15 centimeters water. Airway pressure, volume, and flow were measured at each chamber. The test lungs were set to simulate four patients using combinations of resistance and compliance. When resistance and compliance were equivalent, the tidal volume distributed to each chamber of the test lungs was similar during both volume-controlled and pressure-controlled breaths. Changing compliance while resistance was constant resulted in large variations in delivered tidal volume. Changing resistance while compliance was constant resulted in a smaller variation of tidal volume compared to only compliance changes. When compliance and resistance were both varied, the range of delivered tidal volume in both volume-controlled and pressure-controlled breaths was greater compared to only resistance changes. The authors conclude that using a single ventilator to support four patients does not allow the tidal volume to be controlled for each subject. Moreover, tidal volume disparity is proportional to the variability in compliance. These findings cannot support the use of this concept for mass casualty respiratory failure. Branson and colleagues evaluated the use of a single ventilator to support four patients. This has previously been suggested as a potential mass casualty respiratory failure approach when patients exceed available ventilators. 
They found that using a single ventilator to support four patients, while an attractive concept, does not allow control of the tidal volume for each subject. Therefore, the use of one ventilator to support four patients cannot be recommended. Is the content of textbooks on the evaluation of a patient in respiratory distress adequate is by Tulamot et al. The objective of this study was to examine the content on the evaluation of a patient in respiratory distress in a representative sample of textbooks and internet resources. Two physicians individually reviewed the most recent edition of 21 standard textbooks from a variety of specialties. Smartphone applications, UpToDate, and MD Consult were examined. Each physician reviewed the source for 14 signs. For each sign, the reviewers determined three parameters, a mention of the sign, its pathophysiology, and its detection. The reviews were compared for discrepancies, and a third reviewer resolved them. The normal respiratory rate was mentioned in 48% of textbooks and ranged between 10 and 22 breaths per minute. Each sign was mentioned by a mean of 45% of the textbooks. The pathophysiology was described by a mean of 33% of textbooks. The most and least commonly mentioned inspection signs were cyanosis and retraction of suprasternal notch, respectively. They were mentioned in 95% and 14% of textbooks, respectively. The most and least commonly mentioned palpation signs were thoracoabdominal asynchrony or paradox and tracheal tug, respectively. They were mentioned in 81% and 14%, respectively, of textbooks, and their pathophysiology was described in 71% and 19% of textbooks, respectively. The reviewers also found inconsistency in the descriptions of the meaning of scalene muscle contraction and thoracoabdominal asynchrony and paradox. The authors conclude that the content of the reviewed textbooks on the evaluation of respiratory distress is inconsistent and deficient. Textbooks are the main educational source to teach junior physicians and respiratory therapists how to interpret the signs of respiratory failure. Tolomat et al. examined content on the evaluation of a patient in respiratory distress in a representative sample of textbooks and internet resources. They found that the content of the reviewed textbooks on the evaluation of respiratory distress is inconsistent and deficient. These are important findings because, although increasingly non-textbook sources are used for the most current information, textbooks remain the most common source for basic knowledge such as patient evaluation. The comparison of oxidative stress levels in exhaled breath condensate between patients with COPD and smokers is by Inonu. The aim of this study was to evaluate the differences in the burden of oxidative stress in patients with COPD, smokers, and non-smokers by measuring hydrogen peroxide, maliodenaldehyde, and eight isoprostane levels in exhaled breath condensate samples. Eighty subjects were included in the study. The severity of the COPD and dyspnea were assessed according to the results of pulmonary function tests and Medical Research Council scale, while 8-isoprostane and peroxide levels were significantly higher in patients with COPD and smokers than non-smokers, levels were similar between smokers and COPD patients. Malidenaldehyde levels were similar between the three groups. 
There was no correlation between 8-isoprostane and peroxide levels and parameters from pulmonary function parameters. There was a significant positive correlation between dyspnea grade on the Medical Research Council scale and 8-isoprostane levels. The authors conclude that, even if respiratory function tests are within normal limits, oxidant burden in lungs of smokers is equivalent to COPD patients. 8-isoprostane could be useful in assessing symptom severity and health status of COPD patients. These authors found that, even if respiratory function tests are within normal limits, oxidant burden in the lungs of smokers is equivalent to COPD patients. They also suggest that measuring 8 osteoprostane and exhaled breath condensate could be useful in assessing symptom severity and health status of COPD patients. Although not yet ready for prime time, the use of exhaled breath condensate might have a higher range of clinical applicability in the future. Our final original research article this month is Effect of slow expiration with glottis opened in lateral posture on mucus clearance in stable patients with chronic bronchitis by Martens et al. The purpose of this crossover study was to evaluate the effect of the method of slow expiration with glottis opened in a lateral posture on mucus clearance of right and left lungs, especially of peripheral lung areas, in stable patients with chronic bronchitis. Twelve patients with chronic bronchitis were studied. Ten had mild to moderate COPD. Mucus clearance was measured through six posterior scintigraphy images taken with the patient in the right lateral decubitus position 20, 40, 60, 80, and 120 minutes after baseline image. In the control intervention, only ventilatory scintigraphy measurements were performed. Significant increases in mucus clearance from the peripheral area were found in the right lung and were observed with slow expiration with glottis opened in lateral posture. Significant increases in mucus clearance were observed at all times studied in the total area of the right lung and in the left lung at 20 and 40 minutes. For the intermediate area and central areas, results were similar in both lungs. The authors conclude that slow expiration with glottis opened in lateral posture was efficient in increasing peripheral airway clearance in dependent lung of patients with chronic bronchitis, most of them with mild to moderate COPD. Slow expiration with glottis opened in lateral posture has been used to improve mucus clearance from peripheral airways. Martins et al. conducted a crossover study to evaluate this technique on mucus clearance in stable patients with chronic bronchitis. They found that it was efficient in increasing peripheral airway clearance in the dependent lungs of patients with chronic bronchitis and mild to moderate COPD. Further work is needed to determine whether this technique improves patient outcomes compared to other techniques for airway clearance. This month we publish a comprehensive review on the subject of bedside chest radiography in the intensive care unit. This month's case reports cover the topics of the use of inhaled nitric oxide as salvage therapy in massive pulmonary embolism, continuous non-invasive ventilation delivered by a novel total face mask, necrotizing pneumonia caused by group C streptococci in a young adult, cavitary pneumonia and skin lesions, improvement of chronic rhinitis with aspirin, and farmer's lung-induced hypersensitivity pneumonitis complicated by shock. 
This month's teaching cases relate to combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema and mucoid impaction in a 15-year-old with bronchial atresia. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.